Well, this morning's message will be uh, in the book of Philippians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 27 and we'll go to verse 30. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. I don't know about some of you, but I was raised in a military family. My dad was a, an officer in the Air Force. And so I kind of came at the tail end of all the travels of my family. I was the last of six kids. So when I was a little boy, we, we were stationed at March Air Force Base. And my dad was kind of a strict father, very military in kind of his parenting style. And one thing that he wanted us kids to always understand is if we're ever visiting a family or if we're around other people, the way we behave really matters. And he would very, very much stress this idea that he was a commander, he was an officer in the military, and many of the people that we were visiting, that anything that we did negatively reflected on the family and also him as our father. And so being an eight-year-old boy, of course I understood that, right? And so I used to play with a buddy of mine next door, and my friend next door had this little bunny rabbit. And so when we'd go play, sometimes we'd go in his backyard and and he'd take the bunny out, and we'd play with it. But this one day, he didn't want to play with the bunny. I'm like, come on, man, let's play with the bunny. He's like, no. And there was this big bag of bunny food right by the cage. You guys ever seen, like, little pellets, like alfalfa or something real hard? So I just picked up the bag and smacked him over the head with it. And it, the bag broke, and he starts crying. And his mother was watching through the kitchen window. And she comes out and grabs me by the scruff of the neck, and she takes me home. Of course, when my dad got home that night, I got the spanking. But I'll never forget, my dad sat me down afterwards and we had a talk. And he said, Rob, he said, you need to understand. He said, your behavior, it reflects on me and on our family. And he said, you're a Miller. He says, and you come from a long line of Millers. And he says, and we don't behave like that. That always stuck with me. I'm a Miller. And the way that I act reflects on my father and on my family. The message this morning, Paul's going to basically bring forward that same idea. And we know that Paul's in a Roman prison, but he's writing as a father to his children that the way they conduct themselves, it reflects on the way people will view God because they are God's representative here on this earth. And so Paul's going to lay out how we as Christians should conduct ourselves in the world. That's the message this morning. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Let's read that. It says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So how should we as Christians conduct ourselves? The first thing we'll see is we're to act. Act in a manner worthy of of a follower of Christ. As Christians, the way that we behave ourselves, the way that we conduct ourselves will either encourage or discourage people towards Christ. The first part of verse 27, 
It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now remember, Paul's writing from prison. And he wants to impart to these believers that he's not there directly to influence. And I want to help you understand right up front, remember that the gospel, the gospel message is the reason we're saved. It is what Christ did that saves us. And it is the reason that you're accepted before God. Because the gospel isn't just the point of salvation and then you've got to be a really good boy or girl for God. Guys, that's called religion. The gospel is for every day. You are accepted because of what Christ did for you. But our behavior reflects that change. The way that we act before others reflects to them, wow, there's something different about you because Christ has come in and has changed your heart. And Paul is writing to these believers saying, look, listen to me. Conduct yourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Guys, when unbelievers look at your life and they don't see holiness and purity and integrity and virtue, it confuses them. They're like, okay, you claim to be a Christian, but I see no difference in you than me in my life. What's the deal? And so what Paul wants these believers to understand in Philippi is the way that they present themselves to the world, the way that they act, it really matters to God, and it matters in terms of what they might believe about the church. And their example of Christ's likeness is essential in reaching a lost and dying world. And so he commands them, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And guys, I'm not talking about behavior modification. My wife would love that. She's a behaviorist. It's not trying to be more moral, right? Trying to be better, trying to work up, well, I'm going to really change myself. No, it's about fight. You're going to fight the good fight in the power of Christ for the gospel's sake. And so what Paul says, he says only. He begins with that word only. And that word only is a very powerful word. And it's basically like saying this one thing and this one thing only is I want your life to reflect what is worthy of of the gospel of Christ. Now understand Paul's heart here. He has a special love for the Philippian church. And the Philippian church was actually a very mature church. In terms of the, the churches that he wrote to, these guys were faithful, faithful, faithful. But as a church, they still had their problems because there's no perfect church, right? And so he's writing them to encourage them. And so he says, conduct yourselves. Now, there's one word that Paul uses here, and he, but in the English, we have to use six words to say that one word in the Greek. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy is the Greek word polituo, but the noun is polis, which means city or state. And the idea behind that is this idea of a citizen. Like, you are a citizen, and I don't know about you if you're proud to be a citizen of California, there's a lot of us probably in churches saying, oh, I'm not so proud to be a California. But I can tell you, there are certain people that are proud of their states. I know Texas is a big one, right? You talk to a Texan, they're like, man, I am a Texan and it's Texas all the way. Paul here is saying, use the same idea. That you're proud to be a citizen of what? Of the kingdom of God. That you're, you're, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. You're a citizen here on this earth and you represent a king. And not only that, the government here on this earth, what is the government of the king? It's the church, isn't it? You're a citizen of the church. So conduct your way 
in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, that reflects Christ to others, that is worthy of what God has set up, this God-designed community, the church, because you're a part of it. And the way that you act and the way that I act and the way that we conduct ourselves, it reflects our faith to others. And others look to us like, oh, this is what a Christian is. And this idea of citizenship was very important in those days. And and to be a member of a community, particularly a Roman community, it really mattered. Now, I think this idea of this living community, of the church, it's it's kind of misunderstood in our day. Why? Because we're an individualistic culture. A lot of times we think that, that our faith is about our own personal walk. My personal relationship with Jesus, it is that, guys. But it's so much more. You are part of a living body, part of a living community. And God has gifted each one of you and me. We're all different. But he wants to use those gifts in unison together as the church. And so God has granted you the grace to be part of a living community called the church. And your citizenship is heaven's citizenship, but you're representing it here in this life. And and I think a lot of people don't understand the importance of being part of the living body of Christ, the church. And I hear some people say this. They say, you know, Rob, I I love Jesus, but you know, I really don't like the church. And I don't need to be part of the church to be a Christian because I worship God in my own way. You guys heard that one? I've heard it a lot. And sometimes we'll have people here for a while and then they make a decision, no, I don't want that. But this is the way I look at that. It's like somebody who came up to me and said, Rob, I really love you. But can I tell you something? I don't really like your wife. And, you know, if you're around, then I'll hang with you, but I really don't want to hang out if, if your wife Karen is around. You know what I'm telling them? No, you don't love me. Because my wife and I are one. And we do everything together. Do you guys understand that Jesus, that the church is the bride of Christ? And if you don't love the church, then you have a real issue with our Lord. And if you're not part of the church, this living community, then you're going against the very nature of what God has done. God had a plan, plan A only. There is no plan B. And the way the gospel is presented to the world is plan A only through the church. Are you part of this living body? Are you, is your citizenship in, is in heaven? Are you, are you grounded as part of the church? Because Paul would say your conduct needs to be worthy of the gospel. And it starts right there. Now the gospel, what is the gospel? It's the good news of salvation to lost sinners, isn't it? It is the power of God, Paul would say. The power of God unto salvation for who? All who believe. But to those who don't believe, guys, the wrath of God. And you have to understand the backstory here. Philippi was a very special city. Because when there was the Civil War, Octavian finally defeated Anthony. And a lot of the soldiers, they went and resided in Philippi. So Philippi was given a special designation by the emperor as a Roman colony. So anyone who lived in that city and part of that city, they became a Roman citizen, which was a big deal in that day. And Paul is writing them saying, not only are you, is it a big deal to you to be a Roman citizen, which it was, but even more so, you're a citizen of heaven. And you're to conduct yourself in such a way that people will say, wow, there's a difference in that person because they know Christ and they're living for Christ. Our conduct, it matters. 
Now, I remember a message that David Rosales did, and it always stuck with me. He was a brand new Christian. He'd only been walking with the Lord for about three months. And he said one of his habits was whenever he got done with work on a Friday night, he liked to go to the local pizza joint. And he liked to go there, he'd sit down, he'd order a pizza and a pitcher of beer, sometimes two pitchers of beer. And he'd get that pitcher of beer waiting for his pizza, and he'd have one glass and then two glass. And he'd start to get that little buzz, you know, going on, kind of coming down from the week. And he said this one night he's sitting there drinking his beer, and he hears at the the table next to him this couple talking, and they're talking about Christ. But they're confused. They don't understand who Jesus is, and they have all these questions about who God is. And he feels a prompting by the Spirit, go talk to them. But he's conflicted. He's got a buzz going on, you know. He's got the beer in front of him, and he's not sure what he should do. You know, should I go talk to him? Is it a bad witness? And, and so he basically says, I don't think I can do anything. And right then, another man walks up and said, hey, I heard you guys talking about Jesus. Can I share with you? And David said he learned something that night. He said he realized right at that moment he missed an opportunity that God had given him. And God had to give it to another person to complete because his witness was affected. Because what we do, it matters to God. Now, some of you are saying, well, Pastor Rob, you know, I'm not perfect, but I am trying to live, if you will, for Christ. And and I'm trying to be an example to my family and, and to my friends. But can I be honest with you? They don't seem to get it. I mean, their behavior isn't changing. And if anything, they're hammering me and they're saying, you're a Jesus freak and I'm taking it on the chin for that. Well, can I tell you, that's just part and parcel of the Christian life. But your good behavior, trust me, has an effect on those. And this is the way Peter put it in 1 Peter 3.16. He said, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they will be put to shame. Guys, act in a manner worthy as a follower of Christ. That's the first thing. There's a second thing. How should we as Christians conduct ourselves? Stand. Stand firm, united with others in the cause of the gospel. There are some things as a Christians where we must just stand our ground and not move because we need to do it in unity with other believers. We're a part of a corporate body. Now the second half of verse 27 says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul here is saying, now whether I come to see you or remain absent, now I don't know if you remember this, but in in verse 25, Paul said he was convinced. Matter of fact, he says, I'm convinced of this, that I know that I shall remain and continue with you for the progress of the gospel. So Paul believes he's going to get out of jail eventually, but he just doesn't know when. And so he understands, okay, right now, the way it stands, I don't know when God is going to free me. And so in my absence, guys, I want you to act in such a way. I want you to be united as a church because the heart of Paul and the heart of our Lord is that there's no division in the church. It's really confusing to those outside the church, right, when they see church breakups and church division. And how hard is it on the people? Maybe many of you have come from other churches where that happened. And it's a very painful thing for the church, and it dishonors the Lord. And so we need to stand together, united for the gospel. Common things that we believe in and we fight together for. And the bottom line is we have what I call the essentials. We can all stand on those together. Now, there are going to be certain things that we might disagree with, but there are essentials 
that there is no bargaining. The first one is that God is a triune God. God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can't give any ground on that. That's why we can't say that a Mormon is a Christian or a Jehovah Witness is a Christian. They don't believe that. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he came as the perfect substitute to die for our sins. You can't give any ground on that. There's no wiggle room. Scripture is inspired by God. It is inerrant and it's infallible. We cannot move on that. You are saved by grace alone. Your works will not save you. We stand on that truth. And you're saved by faith. Trust in what Jesus did. Those are immovable. Those are essential. Because as a church, we work together. And so Paul says, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind. And that word for stand is the word stecco. And it's the idea of a soldier that's just standing his ground against enemy forces and he doesn't budge. And he will not move, even to the point of death. That you will stand for the gospel. You'll stand in the gap, if you will. And standing firm has kind of a a positive and a negative side. You stand for God, but you stand against evil. You stand for truth. You stand against falsehood. You stand for righteousness. You stand against sin. And if you look at Paul's life, he was never afraid of ridicule, was he? In fact, he wasn't even afraid afraid to, to suffer for Christ's name. But I do think he was afraid of one thing, that he might do something stupid that could disqualify him from serving his Lord. And he was afraid that perhaps the Philippian church might do something stupid, some sin so great that they no longer could serve the Lord in victory. So he says, be of one spirit and one mind. This idea of spirit is the human spirit. It's the idea of the heart. It's what do you trust in? What do you believe in? He says, you know, be united in your hearts together. And the idea of mind is your thinking, your mind, your thought process, be of one spirit and one mind together. And the idea of this unity we see in the early church, don't we, in Acts chapter 2? Let me read it for you. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 says, And all those who have believed were together and had all things in common. That kind of unity is a church. And unity is very important to our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Christ wanted nothing more than his church to be viewed as a, as a whole, as a united front. This is why Jesus says, I give you a new commandment in John 13, 34 and 35. And this new commandment I give you is that you love one another, even if I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. And then Jesus, in his prayer, right before he went to the cross in John 17, listen to how he talks about the unity within the church. In John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 20 through 23, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. We're believing in the message of the apostles. And then he goes on and says, that all of them may be one, Father, as you and I, and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you and me. And may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and that you've loved me and that even that, that you've loved me. Guys, unity expresses the reality of Christ. And Paul understood that unity in the church, guys, it's critical. 
It's critical to growth. It's critical to maturity. It's critical as a witness to the world. Are you working together with other believers? Are you serving alongside others? Unified in a, in a common purpose. And he says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now what Paul does is he likes to use words that have like visual pictures. And so he used that word politeo or polis, kind of this idea of a city. And now he shifts the word and he's using a word where we get the word athletics. And the word is sonothello. And from it we get our word athletics. He's talking about working together as a team. And that prefix son, it means with or together. And Paul uses that prefix in Philippians 16 different times. This idea of being unified together, working together as a team, a common purpose as a church. See, Paul understands that the important word here is together. He says you need to stand firm together. Standing firm together. There's one goal, and the goal is to honor Christ, to do his will, working together to glorify the Lord. And the minute we start going rogue on this, and we start saying, you know what, I'm going to do things my own way. And I know the church teaches that, you know, but I'm going to do it my way. I want to be the guy. It's kind of like that, you know, the basketball player, or the, the sports guy, that he's, he's the player that wants all the glory, right? The glory hound. I want, I want to be in the lights, man. I want to be the guy. When you start doing that, things start going south. And division starts. Because he says, striving together for what? We're striving together, guys, for the gospel's sake. So what is the gospel? It is the good news of salvation addressed to a world lost in sin. And there's some components to the gospel I think we just need to understand. Number one, it's powerful. Paul said this, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Who's the author? The author is God in Christ. God gave the gospel message. Why? To reach a lost world. When a person believes, they are given forgiveness. If a person will not believe, guys, they are a child under wrath, it says. A person who does not believe is dead in their trespasses and sins, the Bible teaches. And there is nothing they can do to earn salvation. It is God alone who can save them. And so the emphasis of the gospel is God's sovereign unmerited grace, God's gift to mankind seen in Jesus. And the message of the gospel is Christ. The gospel is centered on Christ. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you also stand, by which you are saved. And if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I have delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we stand on that truth. And the implication there is that a sinner should accept the gospel, that they should accept that message by faith. Because if they will not accept that and embrace Christ by living faith, guys, they will stand in judgment and this is why Paul expresses in Romans 1 so strongly, he says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because in it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes on to say, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God that's revealed. A righteousness from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. 
And what does God call us to be for the gospel's sake? What John was talking about in the prison, an ambassador for Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Guys, there is no life unless there is acceptance of Christ. There is no reconciliation unless people respond to the gospel. And we are called ambassadors to bring it. We beg you, plead with people to receive Christ. And Paul's heart for the Philippian church is that they'd be unified in this pursuit, that they would chase after the lost world and live a life that demonstrated this unified and one common purpose. Because division is confusing, isn't it? When people look at the church and they see division among the church body, it confuses them. But when a church is united in a common purpose, guys, it glorifies God. I read a story. I don't know if you've ever read this gentleman's books. His name is John Marks. And he's a producer for 60 Minutes, the television show. And he wrote a book. It's, it's called The Reasons to Believe, One Man's Journey Among Evangelicals and the Faith He Left Behind. And he went on a two-year quest to investigate evangelicals. And I guess when he was a boy, he was raised up in an evangelical church. But then he, he departed from the faith. And, but he said, the event of Katrina and the way that the churches acted, it brought him back to question the reality of Christ, and he became a Christian. He put his faith in Christ. And this is what he said. He said, I saw one Baptist church in Baton Rouge feed 16,000 people a day for weeks. Another church housed 700 homeless evacuees. Years after the hurricane and long after the federal assistance has dried up, a network of churches from different denominations and backgrounds in surrounding states is still sending regular teams to rebuild houses. Most impressively to Marx, all these church efforts cross racial lines and barriers in the Deep South. As one worker told him, we had whites, blacks, Hispanics, Vietnamese, and good old Cajun. And we just try to say, hey, let's just help these people. This is our God, and this is our state. And we'll just let everybody else sort out the other stuff. We've got to go cook some rice. So here's what Mark concludes. He said, you know, I would argue that this was a watershed moment in the history of American Christianity. Nothing spoke more eloquently to believers and to non-believers who were paying attention than the success of a population of believing volunteers measured against the massive near-total collapse of a secular government effort. The storm laid bare an unmistakable truth. More and more Christians have decided that the only way to reconquer America is by uniting and serving together. The faith no longer travels by the word of alone. The faith no longer travels by the word alone. It moves boldly by the deeds of Christian workers working together as a team, preaching and living the word of God. He saw their unity. He saw them working together and he said, wow, that's true Christianity. Now some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor Rob, you know, I really don't get along with people real well. You know, and, and, I, and I really kind of like to do things my own way. I'm kind of a, you know, I do it my own kind of thing, kind of guy. And what I want to tell you is that that's both unbiblical and foolish. The Bible says you're part of a church, a living body of believers. This is the way Proverbs 15 would put it. 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. You don't want to be a Lone Ranger Christian. 
You want to be unified with other believers, serving in a common purpose of the gospel. Two things we've seen, stand firm, united with others for the cause of the gospel, act in a manner worthy of Christ. Third thing, live without fear, being confident in God's protection and also his salvation. We can be confident in God's saving work even when we face difficulty in this life or difficult people. God is faithful. And we can be confident in his faithfulness. Look at verse 28. He says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. He says, No way alarmed by your opponents. Alarmed is, is a Greek word that ref, it kind of refers to uh, fearful concern. It's not necessarily terrified, but it's kind of like if you were to startle a horse and it, like that. He's kind of saying, This is what he's saying about you. He says, Don't be fearful of these guys. Don't be afraid when people come against you because you're standing for Christ's sake. Now, I was thinking, I don't think many of us have faced the kind of persecutions that Paul faced or that the Philippian believers were facing. You have to understand, the Philippian believers, they saw Paul's life, right? And they watched him for years just get hit upon, beat upon, right? He suffered greatly. But now, Paul's saying, you guys are suffering too. They're actually experiencing what he's experiencing. And he's saying, guys, when people reject the gospel, when they reject you because of your stand, because of your faith, it's actually a sign. He says it's a sign. First, he says it's a sign of destruction for them. He said when people come against you for your faith, maybe a family, friend, workplace, view that as a sign. Unfortunately, it's first a sign of destruction for them. And some people struggle with this idea like I had a woman I was just talking to this past week and her big struggle was, was how come this person that has treated me so bad has such a great life? She goes, I just don't get it. Can I tell you? For a moment. For a moment. And maybe in this life that person will have no great suffering. They might have riches and everything else. Can I tell you? They're actually in a pitiful state. They're headed for destruction. They will stand against a holy God and they will face and have to deal with everything they've ever said and done. And sometimes the most difficult thing for us to believe is also that our family members or friends are actually, what the Bible would say, are under the wrath of God. But can I tell you, God takes no pleasure in that. God's heart and the heart of the gospel is that all would believe. This is why Paul again says that there's power in the gospel to everyone who believes but the problem is that we have to understand just up front is that we have to be truthful about the grace of God with people. Biblically, it's available to all who believe, but to those who won't believe, guys, it is God's judgment and wrath. This is why Paul said this in Romans 1.18. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And God has every right to be angry and wrathful with those who will not believe. And you say, well, well, Pastor Rob, maybe they've never heard the message. Well, the Bible would say this. It's evident to all. That every person ever born clearly understands that there is a God. They're without an excuse. This is how Paul puts it in verse 19 of Romans 1. He says, because that which is known about God is evident, or you can use the word plain, is plain within them. For God made it evident to them. 
Do you understand that God has put in with every person ever born a conscience? We call it the moral law. And every person ever born understands the difference between right and wrong. But in Romans, he says, you suppress the truth. And that conscience is clear. Paul said this in Romans 2.14. He said, when the Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, not having the law, they are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of God written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. An unbeliever, God has given them a conscience, and they know that there's a God. They have a conscience of right and wrong. That's within them. But also, they have something outside of themselves that displays God's glory, creation. So Paul says in verse 20 of Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, so that they stand without an excuse. So when a person rejects you because of the gospel, guys, they are under the wrath, they are under destruction. You've got to pray for them. But it's also a sign for you of your salvation. So for the unbeliever, it's destruction. But for the believer, guys, it's your salvation. It's an evidence, if you will, of your faith. In fact, is that word sign is the word indixis, and it literally means evidence of something that's true. So when, an, when you have an opponent, somebody who is against you because of what you believe, that's evidence that Christ is in you, that you are a changed person. This is why Paul can say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in the flesh that I share on behalf of his body, the church. You guys remember the story about, the, about Peter and John when, when they were flogged for preaching Christ in the temple? Do you remember what happened? Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41, it says, After calling the apostles, they flogged them. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. And then they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer the shame in his name. It was a sign to them. And sometimes people are going to say, I don't like what you believe, and they're going to come against you because it's a sign that you're in Christ And one thing that I I just want you to understand up front is do you understand that you're indestructible unless God, it's, it's all up to God. He's sovereign. And as a believer in Christ, he holds your very breath in his hands. Pastor Niels in Job, in Job 14.5 says, a man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set the limits that he cannot exceed. Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed body. All the days that were ordained for me are written in your book before one of them even came to be. And Acts 17, 25 and 6 says, And God is not served by human hands if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places that they should live. You have nothing to fear. You literally are living in the hand of God. I don't know if any of you have what I call a stopping point because of fear. And many of you know Pastor Bill Foote, a good friend of mine. But a number of years ago, he went on a missions trip to China. And he shared with me that this was a tough trip because it was before the advent of even CDs. They had video cassettes, right? So he showed up there and he was going to take Bibles across the border. And if you got caught in China with Bibles, they basically would just kick you back outside the country. But they had a law that if you got caught with any kind of media, electronic media, instant jail. 
Now, jail in China is different than jail here. It's like a gulag. You just kind of disappear, right? Well, Bill and his wife, Carrie, had just adopted their son, Taylor. And so when he got there to take in Bibles, all of a sudden they showed up with all these video cassettes of the Jesus film, and they wanted them to carry those over also. And he was like, oh, my gosh. So he was in a dilemma, and he said that night he wrestled with God. And he said, God, I don't know what to do. I'm a dad now, and, I mean, do I go across with this stuff and take a chance that I could get, you know, caught and possibly just disappear in some jail? And so in the morning, he took the video cassettes out of his bag and he laid them on the counter in the, in the hotel room. And he went down there with just the Bibles. And he said he got about 10 feet from the van that was going to take him to where they went across the border. And he said he felt like God spoke to his heart and said, is that your stopping point? Is that as far as you go for me? When it, are you fearful as soon as it comes to your family? You won't go any farther than that? And Bill said he stopped and said, no. Ran back, grabbed the cassette tape, put them in there those video cassettes, and he threw them in. And the Lord protected him, and he came through. Do you have a stopping point? Do you fear man more than you fear God? Live without fear. Be confident in God's protection and his salvation. Act in a manner worthy of a follower of Christ. Stand firm with others in the cause of the gospel. And there's a last thing. Trust. Trust in God's sovereign plan, even in suffering. Suffering has a way of causing us to forget that there's God. Sometimes when suffering hits, we begin to question the very reality that there is a God. Look at verse 29 and 30. It says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me and now here in me. Now he says it has been granted to you for Christ's sake to believe. Guys, that's faith. That's the Greek word karizo is the idea of grace. Do you understand that it literally means that the fact that you believe is a gift from God. God has given you the opportunity that apart from God, we have no abilities because of our sin. We are, literally the Bible says, haters of God. And the mystery about faith is, is this, and, and, and the struggle I think that people struggle with, do you understand that God is active in faith? God is not passive saying, gee, I hope they'll believe. God is active in helping you believe. And so Paul is saying here, it's been granted to you believe, but not only to believe, here it is, to suffer. Not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. And that's where we struggle, isn't it? Because in this life, Jesus says, you'll have suffering. And it's not only to suffer, but it's to suffer for his sake. This is how Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter said this. He said, Dear friends, do not be surprised by the painful trial you're suffering, though there is some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The Bible speaks about suffering for Christ's sake as a blessing, as an honor, as a privilege. And what happened is, is the, at these believers right here in Philippi, they were experiencing what Paul was experiencing. It says in verse 30, experiencing the same conflict that you saw in me and now hear me to be in their suffering too. And they're beginning to question, what's this all about? And Paul's saying, no, count it as a good thing that you suffer for Christ's sake. And this is why Paul said this in Romans. Romans 5, 3, and 4, he says, Not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. 
And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. These believers need to understand that God is in it, not apart from it. And that he allows it. And oftentimes it's for their good to develop in their perseverance and proven character and hope. And when we understand that God is in our suffering, then we can maintain within the suffering. This is why Paul could say to me to live as Christ and what? To die as gain. Man, if you're not afraid of death, if you're not afraid of suffering, what can anyone do to you for Christ's sake? They can't. You will stand your ground. But oftentimes what happens is what? When suffering comes, we think, God, what happened? What did you do? And we start asking the why questions, right? And it's hard to hear God. What I've found is that most of the time, I don't hear God as clearly until I'm suffering. This is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, God whispers to us in health and prosperity, but being hard of hearing, we often fail to hear God's voice in both. Whereupon, God turns up the amplifier by means of suffering. Then his voice booms. Have you guys ever experienced that? I have, and many of the people that I minister to have. God often reveals himself more clearly in suffering. I know that some of you are thinking right now, you Pastor Rob, you don't know what I'm going through, man. And I don't. I do know some here in the church and the suffering that you've been through. But I can tell you this, trust him. He is in it. And you can lean on him. The Bible says to cast your cares on him because he cares So how should a believer conduct themselves, act in a manner worthy as a follower of Christ, stand firm, united with others in the cause of the gospel, live without fear, being confident in God's protection and salvation, and trust in God's sovereign plan, even in suffering? Let's pray. Well, Father, we, as your church, Father, I pray that you'd help us to trust you in every area of our life, Lord. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to live such a life that our conduct, Lord, would be worthy of the gospel, that others would see the change of Christ in us, that we are a new creation, Lord, and that we're standing firm in Christ for your sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The interesting thing about the Word of God is that sometimes the Lord will use a message or maybe a time alone in the Word to kind of draw a line in the sand, (laughs) an opportunity for us to take a step of faith, kind of a reality check in our own walk, in our life. And when He draws that line, when we hear Him speaking to us by the Holy Spirit, when we hear the Word and we said, that's me, See, many people look at change like this, let go and let God, right? Can I tell you something? I don't think that's a biblical concept. The Bible says fight. Fight in the power of Christ. Trust. Trust in His power to help you stand. It's not passive, it's active. And so I would encourage you as a church if you think God is calling you to take a step to live for Him, when you look at your life thinking, man, I'm not living the life that really honors God. It's kind of flip-floppy, but I want to. I have the want to, as Pastor Neil would say. My heart's there. Then I think you need to pray with me. 
that today's that day. You've drawn that line in the sand and I'm stepping over that line and I'm going to live for him in his power and in his strength. Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we as your people want to be an example and we want to live for Christ. And we want to act in such a way that our conduct is worthy of the gospel. May, may you move by your spirit and empower us for service, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.